So this is a, a quite interesting piece of American history. You go back to 1950, the House Chamber at the U.S. Capitol. They put in 23 marble relief portraits in a gallery uh, along the walls there, and they depict historical figures noted for their work in establishing the principles of American law. And what's fascinating is in the hallway, they're all looking over their shoulder. So the ones on this wall look over their left shoulder and the ones on the opposite wall look over their right shoulder. So they're all facing the same direction, looking at someone. So on the wall are well-known people, consider some like Napoleon, Mammonides, Blackstone. On the opposite wall, there's Hammurabi, Edward I, Alfonso. Again, they're all facing the same direction, looking at someone. Question is, who are they looking at? Let's look at Genesis 14, a maybe familiar story, but something not familiar about the story that you and I need to understand about our own lives displayed here in the life of Abraham. Genesis 14, we're told there's a king of Sodom named Bera. And it says, at the time, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Bela went out to fight in the valley of Siddim. Now, Ketalomar and his armies took everything the people of Sodom and Gomorrah owned, including their food. Abraham is not interested in these kings or these cities. They're going out to fight a battle. What is concerning to him is the next verse that says, they also took Lot, Abraham's nephew, who lived in Sodom. Now Abraham's going to get involved in this fight between all these kings. Note especially, though, one is named the king of Sodom. What happens next when Abraham finds out that Lot has been kidnapped, we're told Abraham took his 318 trained men. He led the men, chased the enemy to the town of Dan, and then he brought back everything the enemy had stolen, including Lot, his nephew. So again, there's a battle with kings. Abraham's not interested in that. They do finally then take something of his. They capture his nephew. Abraham, this powerful man, gathers his own army, goes out, defeats these kings to rescue Lot. And now he's coming back. And in verse 17, it says, Then the king of Sodom went out to meet Abraham. You know, Norman Vincent Peale that wrote uh, positive thinking books. You know, he was a minister, very popular, and just what a great person that did much to inspire people. He once asked a bodybuilder, what really is the secret to growing muscles? You know, a lot of people exercise, but how do you really get into that type of shape? And the bodybuilder said to do that, to grow those types of muscles, you have to have tremendous resistance. You have to push against a lot of force to grow muscles like that. And Norman Vincent Peale, from that, he said he learned one of his most important life lessons. And he famously said, problems are a sign of life. Just like the, the, the weightlifter needs tremendous force to grow muscles, problems are that force that push us to grow. And so problems are a sign of life. As it's been said well, most people's problem is their belief that they shouldn't have a problem. But problems are there, again, to help us grow, to expand, to become more so that we can then do more. Consider this from Mark Gerson. I love this here. You know the story of Jacob. And when he's coming back home after many, many years, 
His brother Esau is waiting to kill him, and he knows this. In fact, Esau is traveling towards him on his own caravan, and Jacob famously sends a bunch of gifts ahead to try to, to cool down his brother's temper, but his brother wants revenge, and he knows that. And so in desperation, he goes to the river by himself at night. He's frightened. He's scared. He's praying, and we're told this angel, perhaps God himself, shows up, and we're told that they have a wrestling match, and then in verse 26 Genesis 32 those immortal words of Jacob I will not let you go unless you bless me and the angel of the Lord changes his name to Israel and he's blessed but listen to Mark Gerson the defining quality of a believer is to emerge from a struggle with a blessing what a great statement the defining quality of a believer is to emerge from a struggle with a blessing to be able to say, listen, whatever life brings my way, I know in whom I live and move and have my being. And whatever struggles are there, whatever problems are there, they're a sign of life. And I'm going to come through that struggle with a blessing. You know, Alexander the Great had some of the most well-known philosophers teaching him. And one time he asked some sages a simple question. Who is a wise man? Who is a wise man? And here's what they said. A wise man is the person who sees the consequence of his actions. The person who sees the consequence of his actions. How many people do we see today that take no responsibility for decisions that they made and always trying to displace blame on somebody else? And when you place blame outside yourself, you take away the power to make a decision to change things. Wisdom is to say, listen, what have I done to contribute to you know, where my marriage is now? And take responsibility for that or your finances or your spiritual health and stop and say, let me see the consequence, good or bad, of my actions. Abraham is about to be faced with a choice when this king approaches him. And his choice is going to impact generations for millennia. So you go back to the house chamber and you have those portraits are all facing the same direction looking at somebody. Who are they looking at there in the house chamber at the U.S. Capitol? Well, they're looking at this man here. They're looking at Moses. Moses is the central portrait in the house chamber. Why Moses? Because Moses is a universal story. Everybody knows the story, but more than that, we've all experienced the story and we know the cry of our hearts to know that story in our own life. Because what is the story of Moses? It's the story of a deliverer rescuing and saving people from captivity and setting them free. Whether that person is somebody in literal physical slavery, and we'll see an example of that here in a few moments that's going to startle you. Or maybe that slavery is, you know, fears and doubts. Ultimately, Moses, we're told, Deuteronomy says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. You must listen to him. The ultimate fulfillment of this deliverer, Moses was a foreshadow of what Hebrews 3 says, Jesus has more honor than Moses. Moses was faithful in God's family as a servant Christ is faithful as a son. So the greatest need to be delivered from sin and death, Jesus, that greater Moses, the ultimate deliverer, 
came in and rescued us from sin and death and brought us from that kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And that story, it's a universal cry because we all want to say, I need somebody, somebody that can save me, deliver me, and give me life. And that's why Moses is there, that central portrait, because everybody identifies with needing to be rescued from something. So let's go back to Genesis. Now, Abraham has rescued Lot. The king of Sodom comes out to meet him. We're told that king's name is Bera. There's much more going on here than may seem at surface level, as there always is. Before the king of Sodom speaks, we're told in verse 18, another king steps forward and speaks. Verse 18, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest for God most high. He blessed Abram. Melchizedek, this Christ figure, very likely Christ himself, appears, stops the king of Sodom from speaking. What's he do? He breaks bread and wine. He has communion there. And what does he do? He blesses Abram. Hebrews 7, 17, it is declared of you, Messiah, Jesus, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So this person here, Melchizedek the priest appears. Verse 20, it says, Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything he had brought back from the battle. He gives a tithe to Melchizedek. He recognizes who he is and he begins to worship. Again, it's a, a universal heart's cry to be delivered from captivity. You go back to Cleveland in the 1930s, Jerry Siegel, Joe Schuster, they understood this heart's cry, and so they wrote a story based on that universal story of Moses the deliverer, Jesus the ultimate deliverer. So we talked many times, the, the spelling E-L-L, in Hebrew is the short way to say God. It's all throughout scripture in the Old Testament, E-L. You find that reference then in, in names that include that E-L, Daniel, Ezekiel, Gabriel. Well, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster created a story about a, a savior, a Messiah figure, and they named that person Cal-El. Cal-El, the voice of God. And it's a story about someone that comes down from above to rescue a planet from evil. And of course, that story, Cal-El, in the story, his name is on earth, Superman. Again, it's a story we all recognize because we all say, I need to be set free from captivity. Go back to Genesis 14. Melchizedek has spoke. He has blessed Abraham. Now, verse 21, the king of Sodom then speaks and said to Abraham, you may keep all these things for yourself. Just give me my people who are captured. King of Sodom wants to make a deal with Abraham. Listen to Abraham's response. I make a promise to the Lord, the God most high, who made heaven and earth. I promise I will not keep anything that is yours. I will not keep even a thread or a sandal strap. There's always more going on than what's on the surface. 
There's something else taking place. There are these three gathered together, Melchizedek, Abraham, and the king of Sodom. And the king of Sodom makes an offer to Abraham and he says, I won't take a single thread from you. And his response needs to be our response. He is the father of faith. Scripture tells us in the New Testament, we are of that faith of Abraham, the one who proclaimed, believed, and knew the one true God and lived his life to make that message known, receiving the gospel himself. Who is this king of Sodom? And what is it that he wants? And what is he after? So we're going to stop and see in just a moment. Again, there's always more than what seems to be taking place in Scripture. Something else taking place behind the scenes in this discussion between these three individuals. Let me share something that came out this week. Article, NBC's Juan Cooper. I want to make that clear because this was not coming from the Christian station. And I was surprised they they would publish this man's statements, but they did. The story is about Zemena, a four-year-old girl, and her dad, David Sanabria. And they were taken hostage and held for ransom in, in Central America. Now, things like this happen all around the world. Their story took place in Central America. They were taken hostage, and they were taken hostage by a large criminal group that then wanted ransom for their release. So they called David's brother here in the United States, give us ransom or your brother and your niece will die. Eventually the brother was able to, to get together money. He borrowed a lot, took him a month. Every day David was beaten. They'd call the brother, do you have the money? Not yet. They'd beat David, call the next day, same thing. Finally a month later he had the money paid the ransom, and here's Zemena and David, very fortunately safe here now in the U.S. I won't go into the details David shared other than to simply say there were a lot of people kidnapped, and as he would basically say, listen, the horrible violent crimes that you could imagine, this group did a hundred times worse. And many people did not make it out alive. Now, when you stop and say, how can groups like that be so evil? How could they be so just corrupt and violent and wicked? Well, David was interviewed. He's now set free. A journalist wants to know about his journey, what it was to be kidnapped. These are human traffickers, drug dealers. All the violence that he saw, worse than anything we can imagine. Let me just read from the article. One of the things that affected David the most was seeing the satanic rituals his kidnappers performed at night. Here's his own quote. They knelt down. They had images of the devil. They made pleas. They made offerings. It was horrible. When we stop and say, how could people be so evil? They are not driven by money. What's behind the scenes? The devil himself. We do not wrestle, Paul says, against flesh and blood. We need to be able to spiritually discern and see what's happening, not just in the physical realm, but what takes place in the spiritual realm behind sin, corruption, and the filth. 
And then from that place, recognize why it's so important that we live our life in the light and that that light shows other people in the darkness how they can be delivered from the captivity of the enemy. What is taking place in Genesis 14? Who is and who do you think would be the king of Sodom? Let's go back to Genesis 14. Bera, again, we're told, was the king of Sodom. Well, Browns, Briggs, Lexicon, shares. Bera, the meaning in Hebrew of that is son of evil. The son of evil is the king of Sodom. The other king that shows up, Melchizedek, what does that mean in Hebrew? That means king of righteousness. You see, every day we have the choice, am I going to serve the son of evil or the king of righteousness? And now you understand why the king of Sodom, the king of evil, made an offer to Abraham, and Abraham said what? I promise you I will not keep anything that is yours, not a single thread or a sandal strap. Such our response needs to be as well. Who is the wise man? The one that sees the consequence of his actions. That we choose life and faith and share that life and faith with the world that is craving to say, I need someone to deliver me. And we step in and say, let me tell you about the way, the truth, the life found in Jesus. As Terry Sisney says, you have a different language when you speak faith. The world will be talking about the terrible drought. You'll be talking about hearing the sound and abundance of rain. They'll talk about fear and worry. You'll talk about revival, miracles, signs, and wonders. They'll talk about shutting down. You'll talk about ramping up. They'll talk about darkness. You'll talk about shining with glory and power. They'll talk about hiding in fear. You'll talk about standing up and speaking out without fear. This is the time to be with God. That's what the devil is afraid of. Abraham Tversky, a psychologist, you know, he shared when he was younger growing up, his dad said something to him. I love this here. Write this down. Let it be something you say to yourself on a regular basis. He didn't get grounded. He didn't get spanked. When he did something wrong, his father said some transforming words. His father's words were, that is beneath your dignity. To begin to look at that person in the mirror and say, listen, that is beneath your dignity. Husbands that treat your wives badly, that is beneath your dignity. Because your dignity is to stand up and reflect Christ in this world. Business people that are corrupt, it is beneath your dignity. You need to recognize who you're called to be and start living to that example and living in a place of faith, living in an understanding that you've been delivered by the ultimate king of righteousness. And when the enemy comes in like a flood, you look him in the eye and say, I will not take a single thread that you have to offer me. What does it look like to be delivered in this world? Let me share this from Phil Jenkins, professor of religious studies at Penn State. Did a study on Christianity around the world. Here in the U.S., we have many problems. We want to see the revival we all crave, but listen to what's taking place in the world. His words, the scale of Christian growth is almost unimaginable. In 1900, there were 10 million Christians in Africa. That's 10% of the population today. 
There are 360 million believers representing 50% of the population. Then there is China. There are about 80 million Christians in China. That is a low end estimate. Well, let's go with 80 million. <clears throat> Time Magazine shared China will be a Christian nation in 20 years. Doesn't mean they'll be the majority, but that the population will be 30% Christian. The deliverer has come. We need to live in him and not fall for the tricks of the enemy, the fears, the doubts, the sins, the offers that he brings, temptations. Rather say, that's beneath my dignity. I will not take a single thread that you offer. You know, George Beverly Shea, back in the early 1900s, his mother didn't like where he was going. He was living this life of rebellion. She left a simple poem written by Rhea Miller on the piano that he liked to play. One day he came in, he saw that poem sitting there. He read it, his mother in the next room. Poem broke his heart. Repented of his sin, gave his life to Christ, and he started to sit there with that poem and sing the words. And he started to play a couple notes on the piano. As he played that notes and, and sang the words of this poem came up with this beautiful music his mother walked in and said will you sing that song in church tonight and he said yes and he did then he sang it in another church another church another church eventually the song became very beloved he was offered a, a music deal. He chose instead to be an evangelist working side by side for decades with Billy Graham, singing that poem after Billy Graham would preach. What was that poem that changed his life? I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name. He's fairer than lilies of rarest bloom. He's sweeter than honey from out the comb. He's all that my hungering spirit needs. I'd rather have Jesus than let him lead. Than to be the king of a vast domain be held in sin's dread sway I'd rather have Jesus in anything this world affords today and we say yes day to day moment to moment to the king of righteousness